Ogana is the new world record holder. He's just clocked a distance of 56.792 kilometers. The crowd's going wild. The NAS Grenadier staff are in tears. There's celebrations everywhere. The Italian fans are absolutely elated. And he looks like he could do it again. He's rolling past here in front of us. Uh, yeah, yeah, just insane. This is just, he has really put on a demonstration. Not only did he break the Superman position, but he went further than, as a result, he's gone further than anybody's gone before. 56.792. He certainly lived up to all the expectations and then some. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cycling Tips Podcast. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It's Monday, October 10th. We had quite a wild weekend of bike racing, uh, which is good because it's the last, kind of the last wild weekend of bike racing we're going to have for quite some time, I think. It's the wrap-up of both the men's and women's uh, world tour seasons. We had an hour record. We had a gra- the first ever gravel world championships. Uh, yeah, just all sorts of stuff going on. Joining me to talk about it today, Ronan McLaughlin. How are you, Ronan? I'm quite tired. I got home from Grenchen at, I think, 3 a.m. this morning. And Oof. I had a small person who had to be in school for 8 a.m. Uh, so that was Ooh. that was a difficult morning, but um, still still buzzing from the fantastic New York record that we've seen. So I'm I'm powering through. <laughs> yeah, we sent you off to Switzerland to watch Filippo Ganna smash an hour record. So we'll hear all about that in a little bit. Kit Nicholson, how are you? Um, well, um, yeah, I don't have a good excuse, but I'm also quite tired today. <laughs> <laughs> you can make one up. You can make one up. Say that you were just covering Gravel Worlds deep into the night last night. Yes. Kit, I think you have a great excuse because everything I did from the ground, everything that Johnny and Dave Everett did from the ground, and everything that went on the site over the weekend went through you. So I, I think you had quite a busy weekend after quite a busy year. So um, I think you have every reason to be tired. Well, thank you. <laughs> we're gonna try to we're gonna try to ramp it up for everybody anyway. Uh, we we've had our coffee. We're ready to go. Last on my list today, Amy Jones, welcome back to the podcast. Our freewheeling listeners will obviously know you well, but you don't, you don't make it onto this pod all that often. So welcome. I know. What's that about? Don't you trust my judgment on men's cycling? It's almost like I don't <laughs> normally watch it. <laughs> You've been watching plenty from what I hear. So I'm sure you have plenty to add. I think it was since you put us to shame by calling the Giro winner like a week before it started and the rest of us got it completely wrong. <laughs> Put us, put us all to shame, yeah. For good reason. You know what you're talking about. We can't be having that. Sorry. <laughs> Let's get into it today. We, we've we got a lot to talk about. Like I said, uh, we're going to kick off with some hour record stuff. And then we're going to chat to Lombardia and Romandy. And then finally, uh, the two different Gravel World Championships that happened over the weekend. One at Perry Tours and one the actual Gravel World Championships. We'll talk about that at the end of the show, including a bunch of interviews and other stuff from Johnny Long and Dave Everett, who were on the ground there in Italy. But first, Ronan, you were at Ghana's hour record. It was a bit of a, I don't know. I don't want to say it was a foregone conclusion beforehand, uh, because hour records are notoriously difficult 
for lots of different reasons. Uh, you know, riders that we think should be able to break it don't, and they fall apart. Uh, and so there was always a chance that Ghana would get, well, as he put it, 36 minutes in and want to die. Uh, and that didn't happen, really. He made it. He broke not only the existing sort of UCI regulation to our record, but he also beat Chris Boardman. Yep, it was a, a true unification of the hour record for the for the first time since the UCI jigged up the regulations a little bit and on a couple of occasions. But yeah, there was a few actual, you know, real question marks about Ghana's hour record attempt coming into it because he hasn't had his best time trialing season. I know he's won a couple of time trials, but he hasn't been as dominant as we've seen him in the past. He was seventh in the World Time Trial Championships, defending his, you know, the World Championships that he won last year. And so he was coming into the, the R record, certainly with a question mark over his form. But at the same time, you know, there was this sort of expectation that it, it is Philippe Ogana. We've wanted to see for years what he would do in our record. And you sort of also thought, well, if he's going to start it, he surely knows that he can break it. But given the fact that he had never ridden more than 35 minutes, um, he hadn't done a full hour in training, let's say, and there were those question marks. It just, it, it maybe wasn't quite the, the certainty that it might have been had Ghana been world time trial champion and, and been his dominant self. But he got on the track. The first five minutes were a little bit hairy or a little bit nervous. He definitely, yeah, he, he said he was going to do a negative split and it was uh, certainly... Uh, a, a relatively slow start, let's say, but from about twenty minutes in onwards, it was yeah. He he really he really turned on. Um, it, he really lived up to the all the hype and the billing that that he had coming into it, and and set a phenomenal new world hour record at fifty six point seven kilometers, which is one point two more than the previous record. These are you know rounded up around the down figures, let's say, but. Uh, just over a kilometer added on to the existing world record, which when you think about it in this day and age to add a kilometer, a full kilometer onto the existing benchmark is, is probably something only Ghana could have done. Can he go faster? <laughs> well, this is the thing. Farther. Like, I should say farther. <laughs> <laughs> well, he would have yeah. to go faster to go further. So you're, you're <laughs> the, the one thing that won't change is it will take him an hour to do it. No matter how fast he goes. But um, this is the confusing thing is because he he definitely at some point immediately after the finish suggested something like, when I try it again, when I've got fresher legs, I could go further. But that very quickly turned into never again. I'm never doing this again unless it's the end of my career. So I don't know which of those are his true feelings. Um, which of them has maybe been, let's say... Uh, suggested he might be better to say um but i certainly think he he probably could have went further again if he was in perfect form if he had dedicated his entire season to the hour record if he had you know taken every marginal gain possible but you know that that theoretical scenario is probably never going to happen because Philippe Ogana is a professional bike rider and he has a job which includes riding the Tour de France and riding all other bike races that aren't conducive to doing the perfect R. So, you know, theoretically possibly could have went further. He did sort of hint that 57 had been on his mind. Uh, and when he started to ramp up, he, at one point, I think it was, he did four consecutive laps at 50, 59 kilometers per hour, which is just <laughs> absolutely insane. He did, he was doing like a 408 
uh, four minutes and eight seconds, four kilometer pursuit, which just a couple of years ago would have been the world record for the four kilometer <laughs> pursuit. And he was doing it deep into the hour record attempt. Uh, and Granted, the when pursuit he was at- starts as a, as a standing start, which is a slightly different thing. <laughs> that granted, <laughs> but, but still, still. <laughs> but still um, wild. But he, when he was asked about that post event, he sort of said, "Oh yeah, the legs started to sting a bit." So I, he said, "It's more important to break the record, and the special things can wait for another day or something to that effect." So he he certainly at at some point or another had the plan to go maybe further than he did but ultimately i think he is also quite content with exactly what he did and to answer your original question i wouldn't be surprised if he tried it again i wouldn't be surprised if he never tried it again um it's one of those he's he's he has put a stamp he has made his history on the hour record he might just be content with that yeah i mean it, it's what you said about him uh you know, his immediate reaction did seem to be next time. And that's the wrong way around. Usually it's, I am never doing that again when it really, really hurts. And then you flip and go, maybe, maybe I can go faster, further. Um, Type too fun. Exactly. Um, I don't know. I mean, because he talked about maybe doing it the way Bradley Wiggins did it and just before retirement um, when he's fading slightly in his prolific uh, season long goals. Um, but then again, if you're fading slightly, that's, no good either. Um, he also had the track world championships to think about, and the, and we're now beginning to near the uh, the Olympiad, the really important part of the Olympiad before Paris twenty twenty four. So he can't half ass that stuff, and he's not an endurance track rider. He's more of the sprinty guy, isn't he, with the pursuit stuff? Um, so it, there's a lot, like you say, that plays into it perhaps not being the best scenario for him to do it. But all the science that went into it, 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 it in the build-up, when he changed the uh, the date that he was going to do it, I thought, ah, oh, well, maybe this is just kind of like, oh, I'll turn up with my bike and see what I can do. There's clearly a lot more than that. And I'm sure that Dan Bigham will be going, okay, so we could do this better and go that bit further, or we could do that. And so they are going to have the playbook ready to go if he does it again, which I think he probably will. There was, um, there was also the fact just that he had a parameter and a Garmin on his bike which struck me as a bit of a oddity in that there, I know there was certain interventions that Dan Bigham wanted to make to help Ghana go faster, and Ghana had just flat out refused him. Uh, the likes of Bigham wanted him to wear white skin suit because it would have been it would have aided thermal regulation, and Ghana was like, "No, I'm wearing black, and it's going to have an Italian tricolor on it, and that's what I'm doing." <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I appreciate that. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. So Dan Bigham was like aid in the breaking of his own hour record that's exactly. funny it was phase one of Which the Ghana project <laughs> it's kind of great I, I think that's fantastic um, but yeah just the fact that he had a power meter on it was an oddity to me given that he was willing to sacrifice all their potential gains to keep with tradition or what he thought looked better he would then strike you as a writer who wouldn't really care whether he had power data for this or not and Dan Bigham is definitely a writer who would care about having power data. But and and he sacrificed the parameter in the name of marginal gains. The the pedals he was using were going to be faster than a set of parameter pedals, so he used those. So the very fact that Ghana had a parameter on his bike, and then the first thing he did when he crossed the finish line was reach around and stop 
the timer on the Garmin. It was like most people like just about managed to keep the bike upright when they cross the line. He <laughs> was thinking, I need to stop my power file here to keep it right. That would suggest that, you know, they want to see this data to look and calculate what's possible going forward or something. Has nobody told pros that you can yes. clip that later? <laughs> but that involves nobody told computers them? and like looking at things on computers, which I don't know if it's just mine, but most of them don't seem to very much like it. <laughs> like big, huge moments in some rider's career and they cross the line and they all they want to do is hit a button that you don't even have to hit. You don't have to hit it. I don't understand. I don't understand why they do this. I just don't. I fundamentally I, it makes no sense. I think it's because anyway. at some point in the past, somebody has said, "Look at the professionalism." He stops his computer immediately as he crosses the line, and now it just seems like the right thing to do. Maybe because yeah. I think it just makes them look like idiots. Isn't it the coach's <laughs> job as well to like look at the file and yeah, check the out co- the coach like- is the coach is going to trim it anyway? It, like it doesn't matter when. You hit pause. It really does not matter at all when you hit pause. Anyway, that was a total <laughs> tangent there. Ronan, you wrote a story before the hour that kind of dove into the numbers a little bit and and what we thought he could do and based off of like what his CDA is, which is essentially his aerodynamics and what we know about his power output. Based off of the result, where do you think we fell there? Like where do we think? I mean, obviously he doesn't have that Dan Bigham like 0.15 CDA, but he was probably in that 0.18 range that you were talking about in that story. Where do we think he ended up here? Um, well, a little pre-warning might have helped. I could have done some <laughs> ransom calculations. Here. Nah, just like throwing things at you. <laughs> no, no, but like, what? What was? What was the sense? What was the sense when you were on the ground? There was like, was it like? Did Did you get the sense that this was a a maximal power effort for him? Was there stuff left on the table from an aerodynamic perspective? Like where did they where did they kind of end up here? Um, so I, I happen to know for a fact, Ronan, that you have a spreadsheet in front of you right now that uh, I don't even know if you're supposed to have, but you have it. And so, what do the numbers pop out when we put in his final time? I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, or final no such, <laughs> no such spreadsheet exists. Uh, I'm not typing furiously on a spreadsheet here. I've yeah, no, no idea what you're talking about there. So um, that's that's gibberish. Katie Fretz is talking. You're just there. doing some back of, back of the back of the ma- napkin maths at the moment. If, yeah, I'm actually I'm just using my fingers pocket. and toes and uh, working working it out from there. <laughs> uh, what was the question again? <laughs> the question was basically like, what do we think he did from a CDA and power perspective? Just to, just if we had to guess, because we we have some information here. Yeah, well, you know, we have what do we have? We have his his lap times, and we have his distance, and we have. Because I was on the ground with an anemometer uh, that I happen to have, um, just I had thought I'd better bring this with me in case we wanted to see air density and the likes. So I was sort of keeping a track of the air density throughout the hour, which, having spoken to Xavier Dudley of AeroCoach before the attempt, he was sort of expecting that the air density would increase throughout the ride because that's normally what happens. But in actual fact, it remained perfectly stable. Throughout the ride, every single time I checked it, it was point, it was point or one point one two two and kilograms per meter cube, and that was sort of strange enough in itself that it just did not move at all. And air density is composed of temperature, air pressure, and humidity. And as I had mentioned in another article, just about an hour before the attempt started, 
the temperature and humidity part of that um, equation, the NAS Grenadiers could control, and they they did control it. They had the heating ramped up inside the velodrome. Word of warning for anybody who's ever going to watch our record, do not wear jeans and a shirt because it gets very, very hot <laughs> very, very quickly. And the you humidity just, is... You rock up in your undies <laughs> is what you're saying? Uh, shorts and t-shirts probably my recommendation, but you do or you. Or a white skin suit. A white skin suit's probably the best option. Uh, the other thing they could control would be humidity and increased humidity would drop the air density, but it would also make it more difficult for Ghana to perform because he would just overheat. Uh, in hot and humid conditions. And rumor on the ground was that the NAS Grenadiers actually, whether it happened or not, is unknown, but apparently they had at least planned to bring in some industrial-sized dehumidifiers uh, to try and dehumidify the velodrome so they increase the temperature without increasing the humidity. I didn't see any dehumidifiers at all, and I'm kind of thinking that would take some size of dehumidifier that probably wouldn't fit in the front doors. So uh, I I don't think that happened. But what they certainly did do was they kept very strict access policy for spectators, very strict, very, very strict policy on how much you could move about within the velodrome when the record was happening. So much so that we like, despite having passes to go everywhere, you couldn't, you had to pick where you're going to be track center or you're going to be tracks uh, in in the stands 10 minutes before the start. And you were not allowed to move until after the finish. Uh, and they they kept the air density remarkably stable throughout. And basically, what I'm what I'm trying to say is why we why we don't know, or and we probably never will know exactly what he did. Uh, what we do know is that they they did a fantastic job of controlling the environment. Part of the reason why they picked Grenchen, and also despite that the atmospheric conditions, while more favorable than predicted just twenty four hours in advance were not exactly ideal. They certainly weren't as good as the environmental conditions that that Dan Bigham got. Uh, and as such, you know, while, while I can't tell you what he what Ghana did produce or what his CDA was, what I can tell you is that given all the given all the conditions that we know, if his CDA was 0.18, which is what has been suggested quite often for Ghana. Uh, don't know really where that number has originated from, but that's the rumor that's circulating about. Uh, that would have required somewhere in the region of 460, 465 watts to do 56.7 kilometers. If you drop a CDA to 0.17, which seems like a tiny change, 0.18 to 0.17, it's actually quite meaningful though, because the power required then drops somewhere into the 440 range, which while still absolutely mammoth. That's nothing. <laughs> it it is well within the realms of what's possible for Filippo Ghana, uh, even considering that he may not have been on perfect form. Also considering that you will just your power will just drop on the velodrome, even if you're in fantastic form, because of the fact that you have no respite, no freewheeling, you're getting you know all the g forces through the banking every single lap. Just imagine trying to hold an extreme time drop position, and then every time you go around a banking at 55, 60 kilometers per hour, you're getting pushed into the ground or into your bike even further. It's like doing push ups while trying to do a maximal effort. Uh, so while those things considered, your power will drop, uh, but still 440 range is probably doable for Ghana. And also consider the fact that a time tra- or a track bike is and especially the one that he raced on over the weekend, is just going to be slippier, for lack of a better term, than an outdoor time trial bike. It hasn't got brakes, hasn't got uh, 
derailleurs, hasn't got all sorts of gears yet, um, you know, brake rotors and everything that we have in modern time trial bikes. So it will it will be a bit faster. Ganna's position also looked slightly different. Um, he he on the road bike, his upper back noticeably sort of dips down towards the front end of the bike, whereas in the track or in the R record over the weekend, it seemed like it was much more sort of horizontal. Um, so they they did seem to make some adjustments to his position, and yeah, perhaps they did actually reduce his 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 CDA a bit also. So who you knows? Four forty or so is you know probably a, a decent guess, which is also about ninety watts higher than the guess that we estimated for Dan Bigham, and he sort of confirmed, sort of didn't really confirm when he was on the Nerd Alert podcast. So maybe not far away at that, but um, if it's not right, blame the spreadsheet. So- Don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you said, we can we can never really know, right? Until until we, uh, well, he did have a power meter on, so I guess at some point that 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 information could come out. But at at the moment, we're just guessing. Thankfully, we do have uh, the back of your napkin and lots of and all of your toes and all of your fingers, and so we can do enough math to to at least get quite close. And that, I mean, regardless of what number it is, four forty or four sixty, is insanely impressive, right? But it's also, I think, quite close to what. Bradley Wiggins apparently did for his record, which was now what, uh, almost two kilometers slower, right? So that tells you sort of just how far the marginal gains have come in not that long, right? Yes, exactly. And you know, to to give you a just a again a a quick idea of what kind of difference that means, if I you know, keep those same parameters that we were just talking about a second ago, and two seconds, right? Feverishly moving beads around in his abacus. Live maths. <laughs> 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 so just just changing. So the the thing about Bradley Wiggins R record was that it, the the thing about the R record actually, if I step back a bit further, is that you have to nominate at a date. Uh, well in advance and certainly further in advance then you can actually predict what the weather is going to do on the day and the day Bradley Wiggins picked which if I remember correctly was June 15th 2015 was perhaps the worst day in about a decade in terms of uh, atmospheric conditions in London uh, on on that day and had Wiggins gone it's been estimated had Wiggins gone four days earlier or ten days earlier he could have went as much as uh five six hundred meters further uh so if we again because i was there we know the exact conditions for ghana's our record if we change ghana's air density to the air density that wiggins had to move through his the wattage required goes up by just over 20 watts uh to go the same distance which again doesn't sound like a lot but actually it is quite a significant number 20 watts is, 20 watts is, is a, a lot to give you a comparison for Ghana to have broken that 57 kilometer barrier would have only required an extra four watts. So to do an extra 20 watts would almost be impossible. And those aren't my calculations. I need to give Xavier Dusley again from Aerocoach uh, the credit for those calculations. He had worked out had Ghana continued his trajectory, this upward speed trajectory that he had for the opening three quarters or so of the hour, he would have had 57.29 or something kilometers. And that would have only required an extra four watts, but to do an extra four watts is uh, obviously not possible. Otherwise, he would have done it. Uh, so to do an extra twenty watts is not only not possible, but just yeah, it, you, you might as well have asked him to do 
57 kilometers in reverse. <laughs> I, all these numbers are somewhat <laughs> mind-blowing to me. I, I mean, just like the, the idea of doing 440 or 460 watts on a track bike in a time trial position, I, I just can't, like... I think I could literally do that for a minute, <laughs> like a minute, maybe if I was lucky. Also, also add into the fact that Ghana just made it look so damn easy, you know, at, despite, you know, apart from the final 10 minutes or so where he, you know, he was, you could see he was struggling to hold his line as perfectly as he was for the first 50 minutes. And he did hit a couple of uh, cones in the Cote d'Azur. He did swing up the track a couple of times rather than hold the black line, all things that, you know, mere mortals like the rest of us would probably do in the opening ten minutes. Never mind the final ten minutes. But he he just throughout the thing, it, he he really looked like he was still doing his warm up throughout the entire attempt. Uh, and you know, he finished. He stopped his Garmin, swung around the lap, came to halt, got off the bike, and started dancing for the crowd. Which, <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, that's uh, Michael so, Schumacher esque jumping on the podium sort of stuff. Like you just don't you just don't see that after such high level sporting endeavors. So he has to do it again. And he has to do it at altitude. But he has to do it at altitude. He should have do it at altitude. This you is think. the thing. So Dan Bigham was on the Nerd Alert podcast and said, you know, to his to his credit, he said Grenchen is not sea level, which it isn't. It's at five hundred and something meters. But for every 100 meters that you go up in altitude gain, your uh, the air density will drop by 1%, which is roughly equivalent to a 1% drop in your CDA. So just by going to Grenchen versus sea level where Wiggins was at, it's still worth 5%. Now, if you go to Aguas Calientes in Mexico where Campanart's done his record, I think that's at, is that at 1,700 meters, 1,800 meters? So you would straight yeah. away say, well, that's 17 or 18% drop in your CDA. But at that level, you start losing power because of the, you just can't perform as well at altitude. Where so there's a, there's a compromise there. Whereas at Grenson, you're getting a five percent drop in CDA, but very very little, perhaps no compromise in terms of athletic ability. So it's it's actually I, I don't know. There's probably a perfect sweet spot somewhere, maybe seven, eight, nine hundred meters, maybe a thousand meters or something. But the elevation at Grenson at is not. Uh, non-significant or whatever you want to call it. It does. It does help. I read that Grenchen was a particularly favourable place because it they really could control the environment really well, and they couldn't do that. Agus Calientes quite so well. Uh, the f- state of facility or something. Well, Agus Calientes has this big yellow thing in the sky that does a lot of heating uh, and yeah. can't really be <laughs> controlled. Uh, whereas. Grenchen's slightly further north of the equator, let's say, and also coming into winter now. Um, and actually, I'd, I'd heard one of the reasons why Dan Bigham wanted the white skins so badly was that not just because he thought the white looked nice, but actually because the skylights in the Grenchen Valdrome roof would allow the rays from the sun to come in through, which would increase uh, the likelihood that he would overheat and as such uh, be detrimental to his performance. And the white would reflect that heat slightly better. Uh, now, Ghana didn't have that problem on Saturday night because he did it at nighttime. But because he did it at nighttime, he needed the lights inside the velodrome turned on. And that generates quite a significant <laughs> amount of heat also. So, oh, yeah, it's, it is different. Aguas <laughs> uh, Calientes, the, the problem there is that it just gets so hot during the day and you can't get the velodrome to cool down again, at least in Grenchen. 
you're always you're probably always trying to heat it up to some extent so you can control it to some extent um but yeah it was there's there's pros and cons to every location and i think the probably the biggest one for Ghana is just that he could go to Grinch and, and go home again you know almost on the same day i love that i mean with all the science and numbers and mind blowing stats whatever it is just the most perfect ineos endeavor with the marginal gains and everything that we've heard about the death star and you know all the nonsense that we've heard since 2010 is just like the zenith of their i don't know ethos i guess it seems so perfect for them it, I mean, it's it's not too not too far off like the you know the 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 seeking of the of the sub two hour marathon that they were doing for a while, right? Like similar kind of level of attention to detail and the single effort. And I mean, really, like kudos to Dan Bingham. He's the guy. He's the mastermind behind all of this. And and yeah, Ghana is the engine. Uh, but all this stuff is is Dan, and it's it's incredibly incredibly impressive. All the the little bits that he's put together. Yeah, and he, he really doesn't get enough credit for that. Like, and I know, I know why I've tried to give him credit for that, but I've seen elsewhere that you know it's been questioned because because he didn't need as much power to go as fast. He was sort of questioned. Well, you know, is it is it a? It, it was just there was a few question marks over his R record, which I think are completely unjustified. You know, we look at climbers and we. You know, we are just in awe of their watts per kilo, but their watts per kilo is high, not because their watts is high, but because their kilos is low. <laughs> and Dan Beckham's <laughs> watts to CDA is phenomenal, and it, his watts doesn't need to be Ghana level because his CDA is so low. And that—that's his, you know, that—that's his mind, that's his talent, that's his even, you know, his um, body shape that allows him to do there. So there, there's different forms of talent and. You know, make no mistake, he has also got the engine of a world record-breaking rider. It's just that he didn't need as much power as as, as Ghana. But what I want to see from Enios and Dan Bigham going forward is a breaking two-style best human effort attempt. Now, I hate that best human effort term, but doesn't it not just seem perfect now for the Enios breaking two thing to be translated into the R record and Dan Bigham to attempt a best human effort with everything that science knows today, no UCI rules attempt on the R record. And, you know, it'd be a lot cheaper to do because you don't have to have the UCI there. And it would be quite interesting also. <laughs> Put Filippo gone on a recumbent. <laughs> uh, Maybe not. <laughs> All right. No, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. We've, 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 talked, we've talked about Filippo Ghana and this hour record enough. Uh, we kind of moved, I guess we kind of moved Nerd Nugget to the beginning of the show today. Uh, so if you're the type that normally skips it, I do apologize, but I find it all very fascinating. Uh, just like the the mind-blowing numbers and the amount of attention to detail and just the whole thing that goes into the hour record has, has captured my imagination since like, well, since the UCI sort of reopened it and removed the the Merck's hour uh, rules, which I, for those who do not remember that, for a long time, the hour record had to be done on essentially a traditional road setup, like road drop bars. I mean, obviously not road because you have no derailers and things like that. But, you know, 32 spoke wheels, old school, right? Whatever, whatever Eddie Merck's would have would have written on. Uh, and that that rule was removed in 20. Is it 14, 13? When, when did Yen vote, Yen's vote do it? Uh, 14. And that's what opened this record up to, to interest from pros again. And, and in particular, interest from their teams and their bike sponsors again. 
Uh, and so the removal of that sort of somewhat archaic, but kind of fun rule is the reason why we're here talking about this today. And like I said, my, my, my imagination has been captured ever since then because it's, it's always just such a cool thing to just watch it go down. Because uh, it, it's, it's, it remains unpredictable. It remains really unpredictable. I'm going to put myself on mute and just keep talking about the R record, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, as long as we can't hear you. Uh, let's, let's move on and talk about... We, we had a monument this weekend. Uh, I, you know, like this is somewhat of an indictment perhaps of the UCI calendar and we are not going to go into that at this point in time but let's be honest Lombardia often gets sort of not forgotten but uh somewhat overwhelmed by the other things that are happening uh particularly this weekend I mean if if, if an hour record and a gravel world's top top billing for us <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about Lombardia but it was a good race once again it always is it, it's one of those races that I wish was at a different point in the calendar so that I didn't have just epic road racing fatigue at this point and could be more into it. But it is always a fantastic race. Kit, uh, it was won by one of our wonder children. Uh, who who took it this time and what happened? Yeah, well, uh, maybe I'll leave the uh, the winner for the end of my spiel. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something quite nice about Lombardia being where it is because it seems almost like the race itself has a sense of fatigue and certainly the riders in it, um, except for maybe one. Um but so there, it was it was what two hundred and fifty three kilometers, which was exhausting to look at. Um, but it was there was something quite I don't know quite nice about the formulaic nature of it. In a you know in comparison to a lot of the racing we've seen this year, it felt like old cycling. Um, so yeah, I mean it really did just follow a formula. UAE Team Emirates took it in hand with seventy kilometers to go. The breakaway was caught, um, and uh, there was really only one decisive definitive attack um, which was on the penultimate climb 20 kilometers from the finish when Pogacar flew off Formolo's wheel and only Enric Mass and Mika Lander could follow um, and ultimately Enric Mass was the only one who could match Pogacar on the uh, climbs um, but of course he couldn't then drop Pogacar um, and the superior sprinter our young Savlinian friend um was able to take his second consecutive Lombardia in as many appearances. Um, and that the final little two-up sprint was brilliant because it was very, very long, besides anything else. Um, but uh, it looked for the most tantalising second, like Enric Mass was pulling ahead. But then Pogacar seemed to just look across, think, ah, oh, no, just let me just take him back. And he just rolled forward a little bit and sat up to take the crowd's adoration um, with his tongue sticking out, which I didn't see until I was looking through the photographs afterwards, which was great. So yes, it was about as formulaic as a monument can be, but it was pretty good. I would have loved to see Enric Mass take it, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that guy is just kind of feels like he can't catch a break. You know, <laughs> he's just always, he's the, he's the old, like almost man. Uh, it would have been cool to see him take it. But you, you, I mean, you have to, you have to appreciate the kind of ride that Pogaccio put in. I, I thought that, Pogaccio was slightly um, unusually quiet at Worlds in Australia. Uh, perhaps the course was just not hard enough. I think that's probably the, the reality. is, Or just not enough climbing, I should say. It was very hard. Not the right kind of hard for him. Uh, so, yeah, just unusual to see him so quiet in that race and then to come back and show that he actually did have 
pretty fantastic form, which we already knew because he had, you know, he'd already won one of the Canadian World Tour races. We knew that he was on good form again. But uh, yeah, just good to see him back, back doing his one day thing because, well, guy didn't win the Tour de France this year. So now he's got to he's got to remind us of all the other things that he can do. Yeah, that was the other interesting storyline was it was the first time that uh, Pogacar and Vingigo have met each other since the Tour de France. And, in, and their calendars in the lead up to it have both been interesting too, with Vingegaard only doing stage racing, not very many, um, and uh, Pogacar only doing one day events. Um, so, I mean, that's about, yeah, it's, uh, it was, there was hope, I think, that they might be duking it out again. And Vingegaard did try and get into the mix with Jumbo Visma, but they ran out of bodies pretty quickly. And then Vingegaard was one of those caught behind a split when the decisive move went and that was the last we saw of him he, he feels a little bit to me more like a a gc rider in the kind of chris Froome vein mm. perhaps like it, well, i don't think we're going to see him do quite as much one day racing i don't think we're going to see him line up at the tour of flanders like we've seen pogaccio do <laughs> yeah. for, for example i mean I, I i hope he proves me wrong on that but he just seems like a a more singularly focused rider uh, which might be the reason why he won the Tour de France this year, right? Is that he is a little bit more singularly fo- focused than than Tade is. Uh, but that's just the sense that I get from him. And, and and historically, he just hasn't done as much. Like you said, he hasn't done as many one, one days. He's never really been attracted to that type of racing. Uh, so I think he's going to be a little bit more stage races only, which is frankly, up until the last two years, three years, is exactly what we were used to from our Tour de France contenders, right? It's only been the last couple of years that that's changed. But I do like the change, so. I find it really funny. It's like men's cycling is heading in the way of women's cycling and vice versa, where, like, on the women's side, we're seeing more people specialize. And on the men's side, like, there's more guys just at the top as all-rounders, which is kind of what we've always had in women's, like Elisa Longo-Borghini and that kind of rider who like seems to be able to do it all. Quite interesting to see. Yeah, it is. And like, if we look at Pogaccia, that's his 16th win of the season. And he won his opening race at UAE Tour. He won Strada Bianchi, which if we could skip forward to next March, we might be saying that, is that his? Monument is not a monument, but anyway. Uh, then he went on to Flanders. The actual true first monument of the season was, or sorry, Milan San Remo was fifth in San Remo, was fourth in Flanders. Didn't participate in the age because of the passing in the family that um, at the same time. So we don't know what he would have done there, but presumably he would have been right up there in the age. And now he skipped forward to um, Lombardy and he's winning Lombardy. So, like, literally throughout the season, but also throughout all the monuments bar Roubaix. <laughs> he's he's just been the dominant writer throughout his, it just struck me as phenomenal how dominant he was in the monuments which you know when we talk about Grand Tour contenders and one day writers and mixing the two together even the writers who have been at the best of that we, we don't typically see them being that good across all the monuments throughout one season like Nibali is probably the closest we came but he you know he, he spread that out over a couple of seasons what Pogaccia has done in in one year this year? Well, the the two riders that come to mind uh, are actually that it was their last race of their professional careers, uh, in theory, uh, over the weekend. Alejandro Valverde and Vincenzo Nibali are both are both done, and those are two well Grand Tour winners, Grand Tour contenders who also did quite a bit 
in the one days, right? That they they sort of were emblematic of the anti sky for for much of the sort of 2010s, right? That while while Chris Froome was doing Chris Froome and Bradley Wiggins were doing very little other racing other than sort of the, the key stage races and the and the Tour de France, Nibali was was all over the place and and racing Flanders and racing one days and all sorts of things. And you know, there's we absolutely do not really want to get into the like Alejandro Valverde doping ban discussion and things like that at this at this particular moment we we don't frankly this podcast is not long enough for us to to talk about that today um so ignoring that uh they were two in very very you know, just fascinating bike racers to watch and entertaining bike racers to watch uh, and very much did sort of set the mold for the riders that we love to watch now like like Tadej Pogacar and before him Egan Bernal who jumped into a fair number of one days and things like that um they were yeah, they, they sort of ran counter to the marginal gains culture of the time, I would say. And for that, there there is some, I think, some credit to. Yeah, and I'm going to say something about Valverde that I never thought I would say, but why is he retiring? It seems, <laughs> I, I know what age he is, but he's he's taking up a role within the team. I, I don't think he's doing director, but he's, he's taking up some role within the team and he's still going to be on the road. So he's still, you know, it's it's not that he wants to be at, home more because he's going to be on the road potentially more and he's still movie star's top ranked writer he finished sixth in uh Giro de Lombardy over the weekend he you know he's yeah I, I can't believe I'm saying this and I, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense but why is he retiring <laughs> to go and do <laughs> the mean, same thing without being tra- on the bike maybe he just doesn't want to train anymore there was a lot that, of bike riding there was that moment in the in the Vuelta last year when he but, uh, he had that nasty crash and he was just broken I mean literally but he was he was also emotionally broken I think there was something around that time when he was like this up and down the unpredictable nature the damage to myself the the uh, you know when you don't know whether you're going to get out what you're going to get out and I th- so I kind of I, I like the idea that Valverde will be passing on pearls of wisdom to Enric Mass, who now will have to step up whether he does I don't know, but having Valverde there, I think it's going to be a real benefit to him. Um, and yeah, I mean, en- Enric Mass has done a lot of racing with Valverde. It was a great picture of the two of them after the race yesterday on the massage table, sharing the same massage therapist. It is this kind of inheritance that's happening, which I I, I appreciate. And I think that we will, you know, Valverde is definitely not going anywhere, as you say. Sorry, what? Like, did they have one hand on each guy? Sorry. Sorry. Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, why does Valverde need a massage? He's done racing. (laughs) Recovery. I don't know. Maybe it was the night before. What is he recovering for? (laughs) He's not recovering for anything. He just wants a massage. We all need a massage sometimes. You know, self-care is important. Self-care is very important. Anyway, like I said, we we don't necessarily need to spend a ton of time on those two. Uh, yeah, just a just a word of appreciation for the entertainment they provided. Um, ignoring some of the things that we're absolutely not going to get into at this point in time. Uh, entertainment is entertainment, and it is uh, you know <laughs> that is part of sport. It's not all of sport, but it's part of sport. So, yeah, I guess kudos to those two on, on a on a pretty phenomenal career. They will be missed at the front of bike races. That is for sure. I'm also going to miss the. Trivia question of David and Rebelin, who is 52 and also is 
supposedly retiring on Wednesday after the Giro del Finito. Um, nah, but, did you say Giro you know. del Finito? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> very good. Um, no, it won't happen. I, I'm convinced that 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 he um, doesn't know what else to do with his yeah. life, <laughs> and so he's literally just going to keep racing until he f- can't. He well, like, he shattered his like, leg this year, so what? yeah. So maybe that's it. Yeah. Maybe he can't now. But uh, yeah, an incredibly cool, bad man. break. I mean, really, really bad break that ruled out, ruled him out for most of the season. I mean, I mean, talk about a guy that just loves bike racing. Yeah. I, I guess I, again, like. <laughs> a history that we do not need to get into because it would take a while yeah. <laughs> uh, to talk about to talk about all the things that that Rebian has as Reblin has done. Um, but regardless of that, dude clearly just loves racing his bike, and and there is something kind of nice about that. I, I mean, I think a lot of us who have raced bikes and stopped racing bikes, like even not at a professional level. It's because you just got tired of it, right? Like you, you got tired of crashing, you got tired of the training, you got tired of the, you know, just the, all the effort that had to get put into to racing a bike quickly. To do that for that long is something somewhat unique and and special, I guess, in some way. I don't know. To, to have the sort of mental fortitude to race into your 50s. Something like that. Let's move on. Amy, the Women's World Tour wrapped up over the weekend with Roman D. Uh, I, I, I always get confused and think the same name race. It, they should just do it like at a similar time of year. They don't have to do it at the same time of year. Why is it at the end of the year? Why is the Tour de Roman D at the end of the year? I, I don't know. I really don't. I blame you. Uh, well, fine. anyway, Tour de Roman D. <laughs> Tour de Roman D happened <laughs> I am the over the weekend. <laughs> uh, what went down? There was, there was uh, Ashley Milman-Passe had a great ride. Tell me what happened. Yeah. So, well, first of all, Arlena Sierra won what feels like her first Women's World Tour win, but actually isn't. She's won in China. Um, don't ask me when, but she did have a Women's World Tour win. Um, so it was her second, but felt like her first because it was in Europe against a much stronger field. Um, really well deserved. And uh, a long time coming. She's had a kind of breakthrough year this year actually really put herself on the map also really don't rate the fact she told me explicitly in an interview that she's not a sprinter and then she went and won her first world tour or second world tour win from a sprint cheers for that um she's clearly a sprinter i mean come on she was literally like don't call me a sprinter and i think i put it in the headline too she said it in spanish yeah. i mean that's like that's like that's like a you know mess peterson don't call me a sprinter or a what does he say that sprinter oh, or right, a, right, that's rubbish then or, a, or even like a mariana voss don't call me a sprinter like come on you, you've won enough bunch of sprints <laughs> yeah i suppose like don't there's a difference though like because i my hill that i die on all the time for for women's stuff is that lorena weavers is the only sprinter on the women's side like pure sprinter um like she's not winning against her anytime soon. So I guess it was a sprint against like Demi Vollering and people like that. It wasn't like she was coming up against like fast, fast people. Anyway, I digress. So that was her. And then, yeah, Ashley Moore did win her, her, this is really surprising, her first ever Women's World Tour win, um, which no one thought it was because she's just been around for so long. She's been at the top for so long. But unfortunately for her, due to a technicality 
in the 2021 Giro when it was point pro instead of world tour after not doing live coverage the year before. She won the Queen stage, but it wasn't a world tour win because the race wasn't technically world tour that year. So this I was a, a world tour win. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It it's was the te- <laughs> technically not, but like, yeah, she won yeah. a Giro stage, the Queen stage of the Giro as well. But yeah, that was actually her first world, world tour win. Um, and then she went and won the overall as well. And then, sorry, I've skipped over the fact that Marta Lack, another first winner of a world tour race on the third stage. So, and the second stage was really, really exciting, actually. It was really good. Um, big, long climb. And I think everyone had resigned to the fact that Anna Meek would probably win it, which sounds awful, but like, it's just, you look at any profile like that now and it's like, that's got her name written all over it. But I think, I mean, she's got a broken wrist to be fair still. So (laughs) (laughs) she wasn't looking so great. I was quite relieved to see that she's actually capable of looking tired. Yeah. (laughs) Because that was, it it was really, I mean, it was, obviously she's an incredible talent, but you don't, you rarely see her. I don't think she's got the most elegant position on a bike, but you don't see her rocking and rolling like she did on Saturday, which was, you know, she was clearly, there was no, no gamesmanship. It was just a massive struggle. Yeah. And I guess that's what those kind of stages or those kind of climbs bring out is like, it's just literally the strongest survivor. She's also a very busy season. She has, yeah. She just came back from Australia, but she does always look like a marionette on a bike. Like someone's just going, <laughs> holding her like limbs <laughs> going all over the place. But no, she did look, even for her, she did look really tired. And I guess the main difference being this time that when she got tired, it actually affected her performance because anytime I've seen her tired before, <laughs> she just goes and wins or, yeah. you know, she's crashed and I'll just win or, yeah. So it actually, yeah, yeah. she didn't win this time. She is human. Yeah, it's always nice to see somebody who's been around, like you say, who's been around a while and maybe is underappreciated, like Ashley Moon Passio is, and she goes and wins in her last race with SD Works. Um, and she's going off to, you know, her role is going to be what is, it's kind of a, a role of, that's a bit guidance as well as obviously going after her own results because she's joining a fairly young team, right? Yeah, she's heading to Next G, um, which is, been a development team up until now, but they're stepping up a little bit next year, but it's still a really young team. And she's going over there as kind of a road captain. But I think maybe with the intention of being able to be a leader too, because we were talking about this on freewheeling. She kind of has found herself on teams where she's been like slightly overshadowed by someone who's just that little bit better than her the whole time. Um, And I mean, we could go into this, but like in fairness, she's also, she's obviously super, super strong, but tactically maybe not the most astute sometimes uh, and that's definitely been an issue for her in the past I think that's part of why she hasn't won a race so far we see it with a few riders um, but yeah it'll be really interesting to see how she goes on next year and also I don't, it's not going to be a world tour team um, I don't think I'm going to stick my neck out and say that because they were meant to be applying for the for a license but there's only one spot and it looks like it's going to go to Planted Pura so she'll be a Conti I have to imagine they'll get a fair number of wildcard invites, the things that they want to yeah. race anyway. But I mean, they already had this year. They went to the tour and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, world tour status on the women's side is still not quite as key as on the men's side. And even on the men's side, you could make an argument that it's not as important as, as you would immediately think. Anyway, we still haven't talked about Gravel Worlds. Let's talk about Gravel Worlds then. Let's talk about Gravel Worlds. So... <laughs> 
Uh, which one do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about Perry Tours or do we want to talk about Gravel Worlds? <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the good one. They, ha, 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 because they look the same. Uh, well, I'd, I'd argue they didn't quite look the same, actually. But. <laughs> yeah, Kit, you think that Perry Tours is what, what's much more interesting. I think it was. I mean, it did, it, yeah. it, it did have the advantage of, I guess, more contenders by the time there was coverage available for Gravel Worlds. Um, I don't know. I didn't think it was... I think uh, what what was great about the Gravel Worlds, official Gravel Worlds, is that the two people who won have an off-road background, which kind of vindicates the UCI a little bit um, with all the road pro nonsense that we had at the end of last week. Of course, if you look at the top 10, it's all road pros. They all have, well, pro quantity or world tour contracts, um, I think. Um, at least the top three do. Um, so it's, yeah, the, it, but it, I, you know, Italy's a beautiful country. We've all seen Strada Bianchi. I just didn't think it was particularly inspiring to look at. And it reminded me a lot of growing up in the British countryside of bridleways and footpaths more than gravel and lots of riding through people's gardens or something. Um, <laughs> I thought that was the cool part, though. I mean, because like that that is actually a better reflection of the way that most people probably ride gravel bikes than this is true <laughs> something like unbound right like who who goes to the middle of Kansas and rides in a straight line <laughs> for for 200 miles like no thank you uh but what i do do is i is i take my gravel bike and i go pavement and then i hop on this little bit of single track and i pop on this little like you said like like someone's got garden ways. we don't we don't have carriages because uh we just don't have carriages here in america but you know we have the similar thing we call them 4 by 4 Four by four trails, <laughs> hop on one of those for a little while, and then you know pop over into some an actual mountain bike trail, and then a gravel path, and then a converted railway, and then w whatever. And like that, that's actually it's a better reflection of how I think most of us probably ride gravel bikes. Yeah, it certainly looked very accessible, and there was it was quite nice in a way to see Daniel Oss and Johnny Vermish lapping masters in the uh, on the way to the finish. Um, <laughs> I mean, probably might not have felt great to them, although I'm sure they were having fun. I, it, it, I think it was the contrast between the Worlds and Paris Tour, which was an electric race yesterday, that made it a little bit sad. I don't know. Sad's, yeah. sad's the wrong word. It, you know, it, 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 it wasn't bursting with excitement like Paris Tour was. I mean, it's, it's the first one, yeah. right? Uh, the, there's, there's some issues with it, like why... Is the women's race shorter? Uh, one of the whole well, th one, one of the whole things about gravel is that they do the same same thing, right? Like, so why, why, why? Amy, do you have an opinion on this? You uh, yeah, to have an opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell? Um, no, I don't know. For me, maybe I just don't understand enough about gravel and the gravel scene. But coming from like the road perspective, like I know it's quite it's almost a bit of a reductive argument that people who are new to it come in and say like oh, why don't the women race the three-week Tour de France or why aren't there 200K stages for women when they ha there are for men? And it's like, actually, when you dig down into it, it doesn't matter. Like, the opportunities and the resources and all of that is what's important rather than just like, oh, why don't they race over the same distance? Because, like, it is a fact that, physically speaking, there are differences between men and women and it would be a super boring race on the women's side if it was so long. It would just be animate time trialing or something. This is on the road. So I don't know, on the gravel, I feel like but maybe... Go I on. think it's the context of the existing gravel scene. 
Like, like in 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 every single other gravel race. And, and again, this 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 gets into what we were talking about before we hit record, which is like like this is the UCIification of gravel, and it's essentially the same thing that happened to mountain biking twenty five years ago, right? Which was mountain biking was invented in America, it was popularized in America, it was raced first in the U.S. as these big, long, either big loops or point to points or just these these big adventurous days of the woods, right? It was then taken in the late 90s, early 2000s by the UCI and by essentially like the European cross country scene and turned into like 12 minute laps, <laughs> right? Like a totally different sport. And that, that isn't necessarily like a, a good or a bad thing. It was just very, very, very different. And that's exactly what we're seeing with gravel right now, which is gravel for the last 10 years has been get on your bike, carry all your own water, do your own thing. There are rules around support and rules around all the other things. Go ride 200 miles. Everybody does the same 200 miles and half the people there just want to finish. Some people want to want to race. It's, it's, it's this whole amateur driven side of the sport. That is the, that is the core of what it has been then sort of take it over here and basically just make it into into like we keep joking about it being like Perry tour but basically just making it into a road race i mean literally guys were on road bikes with slightly fatter tires and it's a lapped course go around around in circles it's a totally different sport at that point it's closer to road racing than it is to what gravel has been for the last 10 years again i'm not putting a judgment on that good or bad i i i found the racing over the weekend kind of entertaining but it is not. It is not the same thing as as. What you have described cycle cross, Kitty. Just the, the, putting that out there. Uh, <laughs> no. Well, what I was going to say no, was having no stood, running. having stood and watched cross country World Cups and a marathon race. I can tell you which one was the better viewing of the well, no, two. And that's exactly my point. Is that that's what the UCI does? Is they, is they turn it into a spectator sport and a television sport? But that is not what it was beforehand, both for mountain biking and for gravel. And that, that that's just sort of a, it's a reality. If they want to make it into a product, it's what you have to do. But it is definitely, it is not the the, the like the reason why gravel is is exciting and popular is not that, right? It's not the spectator side. And so that there's just a, sort of this weird push and pull, and it will over the next couple of years will will get tugged in all sorts of different directions. And I think that the, the end result is probably both exist, and I think that's fine. Like we have the spectator and the TV version, and we have the unbound go ride for 200 miles by yourself version. And I can, yeah, I don't, I don't want to watch unbound on television. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so there, if we want this to be a spectator sport, it needs to change. There's just this sort of we're in this weird halfway spot right now where they're trying to call themselves the same thing when in fact it's it's two totally different sports at this point. To briefly at this point. To go back to the women's distance bit for a second, having spoken to I, I interviewed Sarah Stone before, I think it was Unbound before then. And uh she was talking to me about how obviously because the women and men usually race together in these events, and she was actually kind of saying it's about time for a separate race for the women because it's like we've been discussing around kind of the under 23 world title within the elite race at Worlds and things like that. Like if you have a race within a race, it really like confuses the dynamic for both races even. And then like on the women's side with the gravel, like having them in with the men just kind of means who who can hang on to the wheels for longest. And it's not actually a race between the women. It's more just like a 
strength test. I don't know, but it's not like, you know, an interesting dynamic racing tactical thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable that we end up with these two different versions, these two different sort of disciplines within the discipline, right? It's probably necessary. Uh, I mean, frankly, like the front of, I don't know, if, I don't know how much you guys follow things like the various gravel gravel beefs that have happened <laughs> over, the, over the course of the year. Uh, we have a fair amount of gravel, gravel beef happening uh, at the moment. That kind of stuff is, is a symptom of what you're talking about. Like you take these races that are very amateur driven and then you basically, you just tack a pro race onto the front, both for when, for men and for women. And it doesn't really work. Like it, 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 it kind of works because they just separate themselves out, but you're talking about two totally different things and, and people want totally different things out of that event, right? Like Sarah Sturm at the front of that race wants a totally different thing out of unbound than 99% of the people that are in that race. And so at some point providing an option for both of those types of people, because neither is wrong, providing an option for both those types of people is probably the best way forward. And from that perspective, I actually kind of like the UCI gravel series, right? Own the fact that it is a TV product, that it is a lapped product, that it is a totally different thing from essentially what traditional gravel has always been. Uh, and just, yeah, own it. Just, just, just accept the fact that both of these things have to exist for the, for both sports to move forward and for both versions to be the best of what they can be. Right. Keep the amateur side amateur, provide a, 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 a real a gravel racing series, right. That, that is, that feels very different. I think it's, it's a, the UCI gets a lot of stick for this one for sort of like jumping on the bandwagon, but what else are they supposed to do? I mean, this is, this is kind of what they're designed to do at this point for better or for worse. And like I said, it's, it's just, it's a rehash of 1995, 2005. You want to know how it's going to end up, go back to mountain biking back then. And it's going to be the exact same thing. And the, the end result is what, what mountain biking did was it also split off into multiple different disciplines. We started getting more, you know, downhill became a thing and, and, eventually enduro became a thing and all these other these other sort of disciplines start to split off uh because the uci just sort of owns a, a, a few particular areas of it and the rest Kelly, do you know what flourish. it was like back you know uh, when you're talking about the origins of mountain biking there uh, i i haven't got a history of mountain biking so i don't know but i always had the opinion that there was at least you know a mountain bike race scene before the uci took it over Whereas one of the sort of things that feels disjointed to me about the Gravel World Championships is that it's, yes, there is a gravel, UCI gravel series, but you look at all the riders in the in the front of the race and they're riders who ride in a different discipline the rest of the year. They're from a different discipline. And then we've got this thing that, you know, they're, they're, some of them are on road bikes. The course isn't what we know gravel is. The athletes are not gravel-dedicated athletes. And it just that that so my question is was it the same in at the beginning of UCI mountain biking and will we get to a point where actually there's a gravel calendar throughout the season and we've got riders you know obviously there is onbound now right now and I know all that but is there going to be a UCI gravel calendar is that something we can look forward to? Yeah, I, I mean it, it, it's the same thing definitely did happen in mountain biking. Um, there was actually, there's been a fair amount of sort of like roadies racing mountain bikes, even sort of back in the day, even today. I mean, you know, that's the, the Pidcock Vanderpool stuff, like that's nothing new. Um, the difference is that mountain biking has always been more technically demanding 
and so was never going to have just like an entire road peloton just show up right like that, that, it's, a, it's a slightly different uh slightly different scenario but yeah i mean i i what i see happening or at least what what i think the uci wants to happen is this uci sort of gravel series starts to grow it's its own essentially entity right like it is fundamentally quite different from the rest of the gravel racing out there uh it's a different product it will attract different types of riders i think that they would like to have a number of riders who just focus on that calendar i mean there are some like nathan haas who's obviously a former world tour pro um like he, he's been focused on that series throughout the year i think that there will, there will continue to be those types of riders and then at, at the world championships maybe a bunch of roadies just show up like just like they did they did this year that will sort of create its own separate side thing from the rest of gravel which will probably remain roughly as it is i would think uh i mean they they invented a, a discipline right because it, it's not gravel racing <laughs> that, that was just one thing that seemed disjointed to me was Without having without having a team structure or without having anything else to go, like we have a cyclocross team structure, we have you know team structures on track and every well, let's not get into track teams right now. But <laughs> the, whereas the gravel thing just seemed like either yeah, the, the beginning they, of something or a tick box. They they invented a discipline. It is not gravel racing as we know gravel racing. It's also not road racing, although it's closer to road racing as as evidenced by Perry Tours this weekend than it is to gravel racing. But what I'm saying is that the UCI did the, or not, it's not even the UCI, like uh, Europeans basically did the exact same thing to mountain biking in the late nineties where they took these, these courses that were like, I'm literally talking like three plus hours, basically marathon. The original, the origins of mountain biking at that point was basically what we call marathon mountain biking right now. And this sort of like short lap, you know, six K loop, you can see the whole thing. Like that was invented. Afterward, it was invented uh, primarily on the European continent, primarily by the UCI as a product. It's a totally new and different thing that is now what we know as cross country, right? So it, it essentially sort of like took over that that particular uh, nomenclature, and then what was cross country became marathon cross country. I expect to sort of have the same thing happen on the gravel side, which is we have this sort of basically new discipline. Uh, which sits somewhere between what we know of as gravel and road racing. And it will just continue to do its own thing while sort of OG gravel racing continues to do its own thing. And they'll just sort of keep growing next to each other. I think that's, I think that's fine. Like there's been in the gravel world here, there's been a lot of like hemming and hawing over whether the, the UCI gravel worlds is a good thing or a bad thing. And like, it's just a thing. It's just, it's fine. Like if you don't want to race it, don't race it. Don't watch it. Don't whatever it is. It's, it's, it's totally fine. Same thing with Unbound. If you don't want to race Unbound, don't race Unbound. I, I, I don't. I don't really. I don't see it a whole lot. Of, a lot of need for. Um, I mean, you, everybody knows this. This uh, media entity of all of them is probably not massive fans of what the UCI often does. Uh, but in this particular case, it doesn't seem all that nefarious to me. It just. It just. It's just another. Just another attempt at a cycling product. Something else for us to watch at the weekend. That seems fine. <laughs> All right, <laughs> rant over. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this episode's already gone long on long enough. Did we mention who won <laughs> Gravel Worlds? <laughs> uh, I might have mentioned Vermeer. Pauline, Pauline Farad Provo won, uh, adding another rainbow jersey to her 
extensive collection. Uh, and Gianni Vermeersch, yeah, four in two months, which is amazing. And Gianni Vermeersch won on the men's side. Uh, again, I found I've. Kit, you didn't like you didn't like the the viewing, but I th- I found it interesting. Uh, I did have a lot to watch yesterday, and the did. whole weekend you were watching a lot of things at once. I yeah. I didn't actually ran out of screens at one point. So yeah, <laughs> and, and oh, and we need to do a corrections corner because I think on last week's episode we were like, ah, oh, they'll probably race in trade team kit, and they definitely yeah, did. No. <laughs> <laughs> they raced in national team kit. <laughs> uh, so corrections corner there. They were obviously in national team kit. It is a world championships? I guess we probably should have guessed that, but. Uh, well, we don't, we don't, it's the first time we'd never seen one before. So, all right. Just one side note on, on Pauline Ferran Provo. Yes. The day after she drove all the way to France that night and she won another race the day after Rock Desert. Which type of mountain biking is that now? <laughs> OG mountain biking. Uh, uh, mountain biking, o- mountain biking OG, of the yeah. mid to late 90s, Ronan. Uh, I, I feel like such like an old grumpy bastard when I'm talking about that, but I, I should say that I was like 12. Uh, so it's not like I was one of the people making any decisions about this type of mountain biking back then. I just remember it. Uh, I was, I was around. Is marathon just called OG mountain biking to you? Uh, I mean, it's what it is. It's what we Does used that mean to do. Sam's the OG world champion. Yeah, he is. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he should be the only cross country or the only mountain bike world champion. That's mountain biking. That's what mountain biking is. He'll be so pleased. Where it started. <laughs> I kid. Uh, Perry Tour winners. Perry Tour was Arnu Damar, who brilliantly became the f- first person to go back to back since Philippe Gilbert, who is the third big name retiree um, for this weekend. Um, he finished in the front group um, after. Surviving. Uh, but yeah, Arnaud Demar, who's had an interesting season with a late surge. So it's nice to see him raise his arms again. And uh, he's the new Gravel World Champion. So congrats <laughs> to Arnaud Demar. I said winners because there was also an Espoir party tour, which I presume was as good a race, was won by Perestrand Higgins from Jumbo Visma development team, who's going to the World Tour squad next year. So just an FYA. Ooh, look out for him. Archie Ryan has been has been ripping it up, by the way, this this fall. Archie has been ripping it up. And that was the, the stat I was going to mention earlier, but it was slightly out in that I thought Valverde was a pro before Archie Ryan was born. But <laughs> Archie just about just about older than Valverde's pro career. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, yeah, I mean Archie, I, I don't have the list in front of me. I've just been I, I keep seeing his name pop up in the in in the uh like Yumbo Visma sends emails out whenever they win anything, right? Uh, and so I keep getting those and I keep seeing it on, on Instagram and things like that. So congrats to Archie for a phenomenal fall. Uh, and you're welcome for the Cycling Tips bump. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to take all of the credit, basically. And with that, it is time for us to wrap up today. I don't know. Tell us what you think of Gravel Worlds. I feel like I didn't make any sense in my little rant there. Uh, but I think it's fine. <laughs> so tell us what you think of Gravel Worlds. Tell us what you think of... I was going to say, tell us what you think of Alejandro Valverde and Vincenzo Dibley, but don't do that. Uh, tell us what you think of Perry Tours and Robody and everything else that happened over the weekend. And we'll be back next week. Hopefully I'll be over my COVID and won't sound gross. Fingers crossed. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.